The Start On Demand. On demand. How long do you think you could survive in the bush with minimal supplies? As the manhunt continues for the two BC fugitives believed to be hiding out in northern Manitoba, the International Canadian School of Survival says those fugitives could survive a lot longer than you might think. A former CJOB reporter, now the president and CEO of the Manitoba Chambers of Commerce, tells us about the unlikely interview he scored at the 1999 Pan Am Games. And with the release this week of the trailer for the Mr. Rogers movie starring Tom Hanks, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, we want to know, what was your favorite show when you were a little kid? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and a vacationing Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Friday, July 26th podcast for The Start. Yeah, one of the conversations we've been having ever since RCMP revealed that they believe two men wanted for murder were believed to be in the Gillum area. How long are they going to survive in that part of our province? As you know, by now, the two are charged by RCMP with second-degree murder and the death of Leonard Dick of Vancouver. The pair, both from Port Alberni, B.C., are also suspects in the death deaths of American China Dees from North Carolina and her Australian boyfriend, Lucas Fowler. If they're in fact where police believe they are, they're facing an unwelcoming environment in northern Manitoba. Uh, this is very challenging terrain. This is a large area. Um, it's very, there's lots of dense bush, forest, swampy areas, so it is very challenging. That is from RCMP. Dave McDonald is from the International Canadian School of Survival. I am familiar with the area um, and areas surrounding there. I was a search and rescue technician with the Air Force for 19 years, and I spent six years here in Winnipeg with search and rescue, and we've done lots of searches up there and lots of uh, ground training as well. Fair to say he has the credentials to discuss what these fugitives are facing. McDonald spoke with Julian Richard yesterday afternoon on the news. What are the challenges for the RCMP given that they are searching for suspects, not people that want to be found, but people that don't want to be found? Um, the lack of accessibility to the area. Typically, uh, they'll probably uh, search with both ground, air and water units and... Uh, all those have their own challenges in that area because of access, vehicles, and technology, basically. Brett, we discussed uh, the tension that we've seen uh, in communities across Manitoba, more specifically in Brandon, uh, a couple of days ago. Tension surrounding the manhunt is stretching across our province and into the United States as well. Last night on Twitter, one community in Minnesota was under the impression a police operation at a retail location there had to do with the two suspects. If they're in the wilds of northern Manitoba, how long can they survive even with limited supplies, the answer may surprise you. They could go for weeks, basically. Uh, most people won't uh, or can't, um, but it's all psychological. And if you have training and you know uh, the will, then you can do it. But again, it is very, very difficult because it is very harsh conditions. The heat, dehydration, the bugs, predators, especially if you're not used to being around them, bears and such. 
Um, so there is lots of obstacles for sure. Um, the RCMP know what they're doing. Um, they'll deploy the proper techniques and uh, reach out there and uh, have faith in the RCMP. They'll pick them up quite quickly. McDonald tells the story of a couple of German tourists who were canoeing up north last year. A couple of German canoeists going down the river and their canoe got a hole in it and then they were stranded. And they did eight or ten days cross-country to the Gillam Road, the highway leading into Gillam, and made it into Gillam after eight or ten days of moving through the bush. And they wanted to be found, unlike these two that are trying to get away. Yeah. Uh, given your background with uh, search and rescue, do the RCMP have all the tools at the disposal to be able to tell if somebody is alive or unfortunately dead? Uh, do they have all the tools available to be able to tell that? No. No, it depends on the individual person. And it's very difficult to judge even prior to knowing history and everything else. Uh, just because people break at different points and under different conditions, and, you know, if they could go for quite a while. Well, there's something to be said about the survivor instinct, isn't it? Yeah, that's for sure. Well, if you look at uh, humans, we're all over the world in some of the harshest conditions. We're working and living. Uh, so we're tenacious creatures, that's for sure. And that terrain up north, it can change in an instant. Yeah, or even you're in, in a nice rock canyon and you're in the forested area, you're walking along, all of a sudden your one leg disappears right up to your hip uh, because of muskeg and peat moss areas. Doesn't sound like a lot of fun, and I hope they're not having any fun up there. On the run from police, uh, these two need to be brought to justice sooner than later, and this chapter of uh, Canadian crime history needs to be closed as soon as possible. Mackling and McGarry, McNabb back in August. Greg, uh, you and I were both very excited earlier this week, and we wanted to have this conversation because, well, what happened earlier this week? Well, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood because the first trailer for the Mr. Rogers movie was released hey, earlier. Yes, it looks wonderful, it sounds wonderful, it feels wonderful. The movie titled A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood stars Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood is inspired by a real-life friendship between Fred Rogers and journalist Tom Janot. And, uh, well, here's a little bit of a snippet. Hey, I'm looking for Fred Rogers in here. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Please, won't you be my neighbor? Hello, neighbor. This is perfect. (laughs) Now I just want him to tell me a story. What are you going to say? What are we going to talk about? Is that the end of the segment right there? What else do you need? Right, exactly. To start your day off, is Mr. McFeely going to knock on the door? Who's going to show up next? Right. Yes. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood hits theaters November 22nd, so we wanted to talk about who were your favorite people when you were a kid? When you were a kid, what was your favorite TV show when you were uh, just a wee one? And uh, 
Will Reimer, why don't we start with you? Because you're the youngest of us. Am I the only person here who, I hate to say it, hasn't actually watched Mr. Rogers? I've never seen a single episode. I was a Mr. Dress-Up person. Really? Uh, oh, yeah. I watched, that was, like, at this age, that was it. How old are you now? Uh, I'm 24. 24. Go Is on. Mr. Rogers even still on television anywhere? Great question. I wouldn't even know where to find it. No. Maybe <laughs> National Public TV. I was or thinking like, like PBS that, yeah. or yeah. something along yeah. those lines. Yeah. Yeah, I would just wonder if they if they re- do reruns of that. But yeah, well, no. I mean, who can blame you for not seeing Mr. Rogers? But you should watch the uh, "Won't I, You I Be just, My Neighbor" documentary. It's I feel spectacular. like I should too, but I, I definitely won't have that same like emotional connection that so many other people are rushing out to the theaters and are going to get all those feelings from watching but just um like doing a little bit of reading before coming into the segment reading about mr dress up watching the animated intro that really took me back it you know i felt myself feeling really peaceful just uh just reminiscing on that getting a little bit older i definitely got into looney tunes and stuff like that which is such a weird contrast right like the gratuitous violence and uh, <laughs> like over the top oh. everything what, what was the more recent one tiny tunes right tiny was that tunes the other animaniacs one? animaniacs thank you that's what i was thinking of because i saw clips of animaniacs uh, as an adult recently I don't know how they got away with some of the things they said on there. It's brilliant. Animaniacs absolutely brilliant. absolutely fantastic. Uh, lots and lots of text messages flowing in here. This is, Richard Cluche would call this low-hanging fruit, no. this conversation. But this, you know, it's a Friday. It's a Friday it's morning. It's been a news-heavy week. Yeah. We just, you know, with this trailer coming out, Mr. Dress Up, Friendly Giant, and of course the local favorite, Archie Wood and his friends made in this very building where we sit. Wow, look at yes. that. And by the way, you mentioned uh, Mr. Dressup, Will, and I think this, was it your favorite too, Greg? It was my favorite. In fact, you want to play the song? Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel it too, Will. There it is. Yeah, it's funny how just hearing those, this simple little tune. Yeah. Yeah. I probably hadn't heard it for 10 years or something before this. And it just transports you back, right? Like to sit in front of the TV when you were a kid, as creepy as it was that Casey and Finnegan lived in that in that treehouse. <laughs> I, I always I always imagined being a when I was a little kid. I was like, I think they should cast me as the real life Casey. Get rid of the puppet. Let's get a real dog, and I'll be the real life Casey. You know, he lives behind the couch and in a treehouse. It's not really the best. <laughs> You wanted to be Casey. I wanted to be Casey. <laughs> uh, Tristan, what was yours? Well, or you should know, I play the clip? You first? just play the clip, and you should be able to guess it right off the bat here. I mean, I love it. Show. I, I love Bill Nye. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh yeah. You're, well, I mean, he's entertaining for all ages. We watched this in school. I never, I never saw this on TV. I just watched this at school. Really? Yeah. That's, well, that'd be, it's very educational. How old were you, Tristan, when you would have seen Bill Nye for the first time? Um, I'm trying to think. Probably would have been seven-ish, seven, eight. Okay. And uh, I actually, and you can find old episodes on YouTube. You can find everything on YouTube, frankly. And uh, I remember watching some of the stuff that Bill Nye was talking about. And a lot of the things that I learned from his show, we wouldn't properly visit until grade nine or grade 10 science class. Mm-hmm. It was remarkable how ahead of its time, if you will, that show was for educating children. And I remember, you know, when I was a kid, um, my, you know, my dad used to come in and watch the show with me. 
And it was, you know, I'm I'm not sure who enjoyed it more, frankly. But it was such, <laughs> but it was it was such a great show. And and again, that was another one of those shows as an adult rewatching it, where you you found out you, you picked up on some of the jokes that they were saying, and and you kind of relearned some of the things as well. It was brilliant. That's the hallmark of excellent children's programming is that the parents will sit down and watch it with you as well. Yeah. You know, and I think your favorite is a prime example of that. It stuck with a lot of us. Yeah, and we'll get to mine in a moment. But Kelly, we got to get you to weigh in. What was your favorite? Well, when I was a kid, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. So we didn't have TV, radio, or newspaper. So I was a little bit older by the time it was 1970, I think, where I remember watching TV. Uh, but the, the Friendly Giant always liked Rusty and Jerome. And yeah. then uh, uh, the Flintstones were, and, and uh, <laughs> uh, Bugs Buddy Roadrunner Hour, just before Hockey Night in Canada. Oh. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Hang on, man. Yeah. That is tremendous. That's a solid lineup. Yeah, I mean, look, was Friendly Giant, that was a Canadian show, wasn't it? Yes, oh, it was. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Look you up, bet. look way, way up. up. Oh, that was, you had the timber the there. But uh, you say a lot of people are weighing in on my selection, Greg? Oh, yes. Okay, I'm going to play this clip, and it's you're going to probably recognize the voice, but not in a way that you would expect. Sisters and misses and misters, here's your daddy yo with a sound to go. No shucking, no jiving. I'm telling you, your music's arriving. Ha <laughs> ha, what I say. It's Mel Mounds here with our special request game called The Same as Your Name. name, name. That's right. One of you lucky listeners out there will get a chance to pick the next song. And the name of that song will have a sound that sounds the same as your name. And who is that voice? Anybody? No, nope, nobody. Sean Blank. It, yeah. it was Morgan. It was a young Morgan Freeman in the 1970s wow. on a show called The Electric Company. Oh which wow! Was an edu- <laughs> That's actually I learned to read at age three because of this television show. That's the. It was designed to help kids learn how to read. It was amazing, and I loved it. And I would have, you know, I don't. I probably saw that when I was a kid. Morgan Freeman. Remember, that's how it started. We're going to turn you on. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're going to give you the power. Uh, don't sing, Greg. Yeah. You so can't. You can text us, 204-780-6868. What was your favorite? We've put it up on our 680CJOB Instagram, and we'll get it on Facebook as well. We got a couple of great emails from some of our listeners who are very excited about what we've been doing with the Pan Am Games, games. Greg. uh, The first email was from Brooke. Would you like to read Brooke's note? Hello, Greg and Brett. I enjoyed listening to your interview with Tanya Dubnikov on the 20th anniversary of the 1999 Pan American Games. We have to give all the credit for that to Kelly Moore. We did not, unfortunately, get the, the honor of speaking to Tanya herself. It's amazing what the Pan Am Games did for the city of Winnipeg. Brooke continues, I first met Tanya a few years before the Pan Am Games through my track coach, Roman, when he introduced me to her after running a road race. Listening to her interview brought back many wonderful memories for me and I'm sure many others. I recall being interviewed alongside Tanya during the Pan American Games. We were invited to talk about the Games experience just before the closing ceremonies on August 8th, 1999. As you know, the games brought thousands of Winnipeggers together, and it was an amazing experience. The highlight for me during the games was being a performer at the opening and closing ceremonies. Brooke goes on, got so many more stories here, and I uh, want to sh- thank uh, Brooke for uh, sharing that with us. 
And uh, just one more line. She says, my personal claim to fame was being the lead goose. In other words, <laughs> the first performer to hit the field right. at Winnipeg Stadium. Very so, cool. So thank you very much for that, Brooke. And uh, she actually, Brooke says, uh, I would be happy to talk about more experiences I enjoyed. So I think we'll have to reach out to Brooke. I think you're correct. And find out more about what it's like being the lead goose. And uh, we got another email from Teresa yesterday morning who says, my memories of the games comes from a bit of a different angle. Honestly, I would have never remembered the dates, but being I work from home and CJOB is my office white noise, I'm aware of the anniversary. My dad was a volunteer with the games and was so proud and excited to put his salmon color shirt on every morning. We would tease him for doing this and he would just smile, put his straw hat on and head out the door. My dad passed away just four years ago. And I remember going through his things and keeping his shirt, jacket, and name badge that he was given as a volunteer. I did this because this was my dad, who loved meeting people, a proud Winnipegger, and an even prouder Canadian. He instilled this in me, so hearing you talk about the games has brought back lots of memories of my dad and just what a special man he was. I know that if he was still with us, we would be having a chuckle about it, and he would be telling stories of the sights and sounds of the games. Teresa, thank you very much for sharing this because my mom also worked as a volunteer in the Pan Am Games because she used to work with Manitoba Gymnastics. And I remember her putting on that ridiculous salmon shirt every day and she was so exhausted, but she was so exhilarated. She had so much fun as a part of those Pan Am games. And uh, I had kind of forgotten about that until Teresa sent me this note saying, yeah, of course, my mom was involved in the Pan Am games doing her small but important uh, part for the gymnastics team. So uh, I just wanted to thank Teresa for sharing this, uh, for bringing back a memory for me. I, uh, wow, uh, great story. And uh, I still have my salmon shirt. It's part, of, it's part of the archives now. I can't fit it any longer, uh, but great memories. And uh, please keep them coming. You can send us an email. I'm gmac, G-M-A-C-K at cjob.com or brett, B-R-E-T-T at cjob.com. And I just wanted to circle back real quick before we take a break here. That uh, syndrome where medical students think that they might have every disease they're studying, it's called medical student syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking, I wanted to look up the scientific word for it. It's just called medical student syndrome. It, so. I was expecting it to be something like sphygmomanometer, <laughs> which is an actual thing. And uh, hang on a second. The names for medical stuff are so dumb. A sphygmomanometer is, uh, it's a blood pressure monitor. <laughs> Didn't know that one. Why do they have to give them these stupid names? Oh, because Latin. It's all about the oh, Latin. God. Keep the language alive, Brett. It's time to talk Pan Am Games. Who is sitting to your left? Chuck Davidson. <laughs> now, we know him better as the president and CEO of Manitoba Chambers of Commerce. He does not live in the pause, I just found out. Oh. Uh, but he was a voice on this radio station for a lot of years, and it's great to welcome him back to the air. We always appreciate, Chuck, when you come on the air to talk business and things that are going on in the province. But your history with this radio station goes back 
more than 20 years. Yeah, I started here in 1994. I was, uh, I was reading news in the middle of the night from, uh, from midnight till 6 a.m. for when I started my career here. When I started in radio doing the 9 to 12 show live Saturday nights, that was the most coveted spot in radio. <laughs> I didn't realize that you actually worked the most I had, coveted I spot had in radio. I had much more coveted. My role as well was to read the news, to play mu- we used to play music back in those days. Oh, my. And then was to get the newspapers ready for Peter Warren in the morning so that he had the newspapers on his desk and was ready to go through the news in the morning. What did Peter Warren call you? Did he call you by, I'm, I'm, I don't imagine even, I don't calling even you think by his he last knew name. my name for the most name. part. No. I was just one of those guys. That that was, yeah, no, I don't no. even think he knew my name. Who's the overnight yeah, guy? Yeah. <laughs> oh, the overnight guy. <laughs> and then I would just get criticized if you were ever reading news overnight and you were a rookie and you would say a name wrong. Sure. And so oh. Bob Irving would be coming in in the morning and Roger Kerr and all these sort of legends in the radio business. And I remember the first time I had to say Nicolay Habibulin's name and I pronounced it Kabibulin. <laughs> you and Scotty Bowman yeah. both did the same thing, so you're a good and company. I got reamed out that morning that I better learn how to say these names or don't say them on the air. Like Bob reamed you out? Bob did, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I, and Curry. Because I remember every time I filled in on the afternoon sports uh, when I was first starting out. So I'd go in at 425, I'd read my sports cast, I'd come out at 429, and it became sort of just, I knew it was coming. I'd walk out and the phone would be ringing. <laughs> and, it would, and, and it would be Bob, and I'd say, hi, Bob. And he'd go, yeah, Brett. <laughs> when you're doing the golf story, and because I, 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 I wasn't playing golf yet, yeah. I didn't know how to read a golf story. So that's hilarious yeah. that uh, we all have a story it's about golf correcting yeah, Absolutely. Us. Yeah. So Pan Am Games. How, oh, you, right. That's why oh, you're that's here. Why here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What was your role in the Pan Am Games? So my role in the Pan Am Games. So back back when I was here at CJOB, we kind of had two two reporters. So myself and Carolyn Seifert were the sort of two news reporters. And during the Pan Am Games, we were just kind of sent out, uh, do the news during the day. And then we were covering sports continuously as well. And so what I mostly remember about those days, and because it was you know, prior to social media and all these kind of things, our job was that we were breaking news constantly and talking about all the stories that were going on around the Pan Am game. So that's what my memories were in terms of we would have morning meetings every day in terms of who's going to what and everyone was sent to different projects or there was news items. And it was about breaking news constantly here for two weeks. Outside of the sports stories or the the news that that was surrounding it, it was it was a combination. So you know, for instance, whether it be you know the uh, the opening and the closing ceremonies, we were getting stories about that. And so I remember my you know the story that I most remember about the Pan Am Games was the closing ceremonies. And so what you'll remember with the closing ceremonies, this is when uh, uh, Randy Backman and 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 Burton Cummings, Cummings were coming back together. Right. And so we were covering this and, and no one had really interviewed I, them. I just, yeah. I just want to jump in for a sec. The Pan Am Games organizers had said to all members of the media under no circumstances. And because we were broadcasting the closing ceremonies live, it was more or less directed at us. But under no circumstances was there to be an interview with Burton Cummings and Randy Bachman before the, the their performance. You might as well have waved a red cape in front of he and Seifert's face. <laughs> and, so, and so that was exactly it, right? So during the Pan Am, the opening ceremonies are going on. We're wandering around downstairs trying to get interviews and finding interesting things. And I remember walking back to where the um, where, where they kind of had, uh, everyone was kind of set up. and they sort had of the little, green room. Yeah, sort of the it. green room. And they were all in these trailers. And all of a sudden, I'm walking back there and all of a sudden, Burton Cummings pops out to have a smoke. 
and he pops out of his trailer to have a smoke and I wander up and I talk to him and I said, Hey Burton, you know, can we, uh, can we do a quick interview with you? You know, before you, before you go on stage, are you nervous and that kind of stuff? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. No problem at all. <laughs> and so I'm like, are you kidding me? And so I call up cause we're live on the air. We're covering the closing ceremonies. And I remember calling up to the, uh, to the booth to say, you know, we're ready to go on. And I, and I was so excited. Right. And I'm calling up and going, I got him. I got him. I got, uh, I got the big guy and I couldn't remember his name for the life of me in terms of who I was going to interview. And then they said, okay, who, who do you got? I said, the big guy, you know, and it was, Jim and, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Burton Bur- I got Burton Cummings. And so all of a sudden they come to me and we did this interview with Burton Cummings for three to five minutes and him talking about how nervous he was because he hadn't been on stage in a while and about, you know, what big presence this was. So, and, and getting him before he went on stage to do the closing ceremonies. Yeah. Uh, and he, and he, and he was could, nervous, right? Yeah. Brent Cummings was nervous. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and he could have broken who was going to light the torch for the opening yeah. ceremonies. And so the opening ceremonies was the big secret as well in terms of who was going to be doing that. And again, we were all trying to find out who the story was. And I remember walking through and it was at the old stadium, right? The old sure. football stadium. And they used to have that big media room up, upstairs where all the, the blue, media would the sit. Blue and gold yeah. room and so, no, not the blue and gold room. So the, up where the, the media would cover the event. And I was walking through there going to the booth. And all of a sudden I see this blonde woman sitting there all by herself. And it was Silken Lauman. And Silken Lauman, of course, had, you know, she was the Olympian, won the rowing and all these kind of things. And I walked up to Silken Lauman, who's sitting all by herself. And I recognized her and I said, you know, oh, can we do an interview? Like, well, you know, what are you, what are you doing here? And she said, no, no, I can't, I can't talk to anyone. I can't do anything. And I, I never thought anything of it. <laughs> and then an hour and a half later, she's the there one she laying there. There she is. <laughs> oh, that's what, that's she's, what she's here for. <laughs> Chuck, what uh, sports did you get to cover while you're... You're doing the games. Uh, I, I covered track and field. I covered soccer. Um, I remember covering volleyball uh, were some of the sports that I was sent to. And then just the broader stories about what was going on around the Pan Am Games and, and, and sort of covering the entire event. Yeah, and, and I guess track and field, Chuck, would be, uh, aside from yeah. Burton Cummings, who we just heard there, uh, track and field would be one of the highlights for sure for you? Well, for sure, because, I mean, I spent most of my time at CJOB in the newsroom, but I always had this deep seed that I wanted to do sports and got the opportunity when Donovan Bailey uh, was here and he was running in the 4x100. I got the call the 4x100 race uh, as part of the Pan Am Games and then had the opportunity to interview him right after the event. Uh, and of course, because CJOB was the official broadcaster, we got access to all the athletes before any of the other media did. And so everyone wanted to talk to Donovan Bailey about the race. And I can't remember, I assume they won, but I can't remember. The silver, they won the silver. Won the silver. I think they won the silver, yeah. yeah. Uh, but getting to talk to Donovan Bailey after that, while well, all the other media had to kind of wait their turn while CJOB uh, was done doing what they needed to do with Donovan Bailey. Well, we've often mentioned it was such a crowning achievement for the city. But Kelly, this was such a big deal for CJOB. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're bad at, at pumping. Uh, our chess and thumping our chess in Manitoba period, but this really was CJOB at its finest. It, it was, as Chuck mentioned earlier, I mean, there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram or, or anything else like that. So we really did become, uh, I think, uh, uh, the, the source that everybody went to for games coverage and, and games news. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and and the the thing that I'll never ever forget, those of us who had the incredible 
privilege and pleasure to work uh, during those games was the team camaraderie that developed as a result of that. It has for years. I, I haven't seen Crystal Gamancing in 20 years, and it was just like old home week here a couple days ago. I often mention uh, I've been on several championship teams at different levels in different sports, and there's something about winning a championship with a group of people that ties you together yeah. forever, and this was uh, like a championship game or a championship Two weeks plus for CJOB. I think if you talk to anyone that was a part of that Pan Am Games coverage from CJOB at that time, they'll always talk about those two weeks as the best time they ever had at any employment they've had. And I say that, you know, to this day and some of the opportunities that I've had in different jobs, I always come back to what was the best thing you ever did? Man, the Pan Am Games at CJOB for those two weeks was so much. It didn't seem like work. And we knew we were putting in at least 18-hour days every day, but you couldn't wait to get up and put on that. We had those... Everyone had those golf shirts and yeah. that were all the same, and they were heavy and sweaty. And <laughs> but you put on the same golf shirt every day, the CJOB on your chest, and, it's either purple and or you green, went to work. Wasn't it? I think I, I had three. I had a blue, I had a green, and I had like a mauve one. Yeah, mauve. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, and it was the best, and it was just such a memorable time, and it was such a great opportunity, not just for CJOB but for the city. Yeah. Like that's in my mind, that event was really a turning point for the city because it was really. The first big event of that scope that had been done in the city, uh, and we just had a brand new baseball stadium, and everything had this nice, clean feel, and everyone was so excited, and all the events were packed, and you had thousands of volunteers in their salmon jackets, and I just think that was really a turning point for this city. Yeah, and and in the shadow of the Jets leaving, it was really a turning of the page. I had just come back to Winnipeg and really got the sense that that was the beginning of Winnipeg's rebirth. And I think to a great extent, we're still riding some of the momentum from what was kicked off in July and August of of 99. Thanks for the memories, you guys. Absolutely. Thank you. And just one final question, Chuck. You said it was the best time you've ever had at work. It was the most fun. So does that mean every day you go to work and you think, God, this sucks. (laughs) The the best is already behind me. It is. It can only get worse from here on out. (laughs) Chuck Davidson is president and CEO of the Manitoba Chambers of Commerce. Once upon a time, a reporter extraordinaire here at 680 CJOB, including during the 1999 Pan Am Games. We're talking about bees. The bees, Greg. Where are the bees? The bees are everywhere, if you haven't noticed. And uh, our friends at uh, Red River College are really stepping up their game in terms of making sure bees are a part of our community. And in fact, they have something called, I'm, I, I'm just, just trying to search for it here. I got it on the last page here. Oh, Pollinator Garden. Ooh. So to learn more about this and, and how we are introducing more bees to the urban environment, we welcome Sarah MacArthur, Director of Sustainability at Red River College. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. What have you done at RRC to encourage these pollinators to uh, move to the city of Winnipeg? Well, we've partnered with Bee Project Apiaries for four years, having hives on our campuses at the Notre Dame campus and downtown. 
And last year, we decided to really increase their um, the availability of plants for them to forage on by planting a pollinator garden, which has a variety of flowers and plants that our bees can um, feed on for the whole spring and summer season to produce a lot of great honey. So these are your bees? These are Bee Project's apiary bees that we put on our rooftop, just like a whole bunch of other businesses um, and schools in and around our city. Um, So I guess technically they're Bee Project's bees, um, but those bees make a bunch of honey that the college keeps, and then we sell it at our farmer's markets. We've heard so much about bees and the fact that they're a a precursor. I mean, I don't want to compare them to another animal, but, uh, you know, that canary in the coal mine with regard to the environment and what's going on. And so why is it so important? And, and, you know, from your point of view, what are the lack of bees and trying to tell us? Well, bees are vital to our food system. They are a key part of so many of the fruits and vegetables and nuts that we all enjoy. And yes, a lot of news was coming out a few years ago about the decline of pollinators around the world. And um, so we're just trying to do our small part on our campus to not only increase um, pollination for not only our honeybees, but native pollinators like leafcutter bees and moths and butterflies that we have in our environment. Um, Yeah, so that's what we're trying to do. What is, and I I have a basic understanding of this, but can you maybe just sort of refresh my memory? Like what is actually happening when a bee is in the act of pollinating something? So bees go in, they will suck out the nectar, and then what happens is there's pollen in um, flowers and plants, and then by the fact of them being right in there and extracting that nectar, they're taking some pollen onto their bodies and moving it from one flower to another, and that's helping that plant to grow. What an incredible use of real estate that otherwise really goes unused, right, Sarah? The rooftops of different uh, buildings, we're seeing these uh, green roofs, and and a lot of communities are legislating the use of of downtown roofs and and skyscrapers uh, to be green and to to work with the environment. When did RRC uh, wake up to this possibility? Well, we've been committed to sustainability for years and years. We installed our first hives on our campuses four years ago. Um, and it, and then, as I mentioned before, added those pollinator, the pollinator garden a couple of years ago. So not only are we making a nice environment for bees to, um, to live on our rooftops, but then improving our natural environment and our grounds surrounding our campus to improve um, the pollination and the food production for for everyone to enjoy. When you first brought in the bees, did you get any pushback from from either staff or students who were like, whoa, I don't want to get stung by a bee when I'm trying to go to school? Yes, there is a little bit of a learning curve because bees are not wasps. Bees are docile. They will die after they sting you. They don't want to, or bumblebees will. Bees don't want to do that. And so um, when we go up to the rooftop and we introduce our students and staff to the honeybees that are on our rooftop, people are often very hesitant. They stand back. They don't really want to get too close to the bees. And there are lots of bees swarming up there. But Bee Project does a wonderful job to sort of introduce the life of the bee and to make it a bit of a less intimidating process. And then by the end of these visits, you have students and staff holding frames of honeybees, you know, thousands at a time, and people are getting really, really engaged. 
Director of Sustainability. That sounds like a fantastic title, but it sounds like a lot of responsibility. What else are you doing over there, Sarah, to uh, make RRC a sustainable institution? Oh, geez. Um, How much time do you have? I guess we're really doing a lot. So in terms of our, it's how we operate our campus, basically. So not only the way we operate our grounds, like we've talked about with the pollinator garden, how our students and staff come to campus. So we run a bit of a kind of an integrated program to reduce single occupancy trips to campus. We promote carpooling for our students and staff. We subsidize transit passes for staff. We have bike lockers on campus to make secure, weather-protected bike parking um, on our campuses. It's a lot in our purchasing decisions, how we are using our large purchasing power as a large institution to make more sustainable decisions. So requiring um, less harmful chemicals that we use um, and cleaning products, Um, really promoting local foods and requiring that our vendors um, give us reporting so we can track the amount of local foods that we purchase. The way we operate our buildings, we've built, you know, one brand new building and we're in the midst of construction, reducing the impacts um, by, you know, geothermal heating and cooling. And I mean, the list goes on and on. Now, when it comes to this pollinator garden, if I want to see it, is it, you know, is it something that the public can enjoy? The public can absolutely enjoy. Um, so it's located on our Notre Dame campus. Um, on the southwest sort of quadrant of our of our large campus. And um, yeah, you can see all the different types of plants we have there. And we really encourage people to come and take a look, learn about the garden, and then figure out if there are some more um, pollinator-friendly plants they can plant in their gardens. Do any other species infiltrate this garden? Like uh, you mentioned wasps earlier, like do they ever come in and and sort of fight with the bees or do birds get in there to try to to take away the bees' food? Well, this is it. And what Chris and Lindsay will say too, they they oversee, you know, European honeybees because they make the honey. But we're really trying to, you know, we've, we've planted this pollinator garden not just for our honeybees and really to promote um, a good food source for all the native pollinators, which are really way more than what our honeybees are um, around in our community. And bees travel up to five kilometers um, to forage for food. So this isn't just, you know, our campus and this is only for our bees. This is for, you know, promoting kind of a nice diverse ecosystem in our community. Sounds like you're a good neighbor. Sarah, I had no idea that you would know so much about bees and what they're up to and their effect and their positive uh, use in in, uh, in this. So thank you for dazzling us with your knowledge and, and thanks for taking some time with us this morning. Well, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.